right now, it's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joining us as always, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor, Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. And we continue our remote operations as we are in the midst of COVID-19. What is on the agenda today? Well, the first case that uh, I thought was worth uh, talking about uh, this week is actually out of Quebec. Uh, and it's a case out of the Quebec Court of Appeal and quite possibly the highest authority uh, you will ever see considering the game of rock, paper, scissors. Fascinating. And it also involves Quebec's civil code, which is different from the common law system that we use. How does that work? That's an excellent question, and and I must say, as a common law lawyer, I always find it to be a little bit of a head-scratcher. The common law works by having judges uh, interpret sections and make decisions and then uh, try to apply those to future cases. Uh, And so if you were trying to sort out what might uh, a particular section mean or a particular law, you might look to what have previous judges said about that and how have they interpreted it. And so it sort of evolves over time. Uh, the civil code system tries much more to codify, codify every possible scenario. And so there is in the Quebec civil code, because the, uh, in Quebec the uh, civil system is what is applied to uh, civil disputes. Right? Mm-hmm. The criminal code would apply all across the country, but if you're having a dispute over uh, money or a contract or something in Quebec, well, the civil code applies. Uh, and uh, the Quebec Civil Code, uh, if you can imagine, actually has this particular section is section 2,629. You're going to need a lot of sections. <laughs> That's a lot of sections. When you're trying to anticipate all manner of different possible human affairs. And so the uh, issue in the case uh, involved uh, these two people who entered into a series of best-of-three rock-paper-scissors games uh, back in January of 2011. And the amount of money wagered was $517,000. For (laughs) one rock, a half a million dollars. It's three three rock, paper, scissors games, in all fairness. (laughs) Forgive me. Oh, that's an entirely different matter. (laughs) So they had these three, I guess it was sort of double or nothing. They went three games, and the loser wound up on the hook for $517,000. And I suppose to his moral credit at the time, Uh, He paid in the form of granting a mortgage on his home uh, for the amount of $517,000. And for a period of about 10 months, he made payments to the winner of the Rock, Paper, Scissors games uh, before he uh, maybe he spoke to a lawyer or came across Section 2629 of the Civil Code and decided to try to go to court to see if he could get out of having to pay. He was trying to invalidate uh, this mortgage he'd given to the other person having lost the game. Huh. And so the case wound up in the Quebec Superior Court uh, in 2017, and the judge there was required to go and look at this uh, section of the Civil Code. And that part of the Civil Code provides that for a gambling contract to be valid, uh, there are two requirements under the Civil Code. One is that it must be a, uh, a wager or gambling contract on something that uh, is activity uh, that is requiring more, that, that requires only skill or bodily exertion on the part of the parties. So I suppose that would be things like gambling on um, a sporting event two people might engage in, for example, right, as opposed to uh, a lottery. 
And then there's another requirement that the gambling contract must not be excessive. Hmm. And so the Supreme Court judge had to, first of all, and this is great authority, uh, make a determination as to whether rock, paper, scissors is a game of luck or not. Is rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors a game of luck? Or is it a game involving only skill and bodily exertion? And the trial judge found that, in some circumstances, rock, paper, scissors is, in fact, a game of skill. Uh, and the uh, judge made reference to the particular skills of speed of execution, sense of observation, uh, and putting in place a strategic sequence of rock, paper, or scissors. Uh, the trial judge also found, uh, so the judge found that, look, uh, this was a game involving skill, but the amount uh, of money involved here was excessive and found that the contract was not enforceable. Now, off it goes to the Court of Appeal. I guess that was worth the effort of the winner of the Rock, Paper, Scissors trio, given it was $517,000 on the line. Yes. And so the Court of Appeal had to review, again, whether Rock, Paper, Scissors was a game of skill or chance, and whether the contract was for an excessive amount of money. The Court of Appeal disagreed with the trial judge and found that uh, Rock, Paper, Scissors was, uh, they said, it seems evident uh, the game involves a large part of chance and does not only take skill or bodily exertion. <laughs> it was an interesting uh, authority on that point. Uh, but agreed that the amount of money here on this wagered was excessive. And because this provision of the civil code requires that a gambling contract not be for an excessive amount of money, whatever that might mean, in this case, the Court of Appeal found that $517,000 was indeed excessive, and so whether or not rock, paper, scissors involves simply skill or uh, gambling, just a random chance, it, uh, in either case, uh, the loser doesn't have to pay, the mortgage is cancelled, uh, and uh, after a number of years, uh, he's off the hook for the half million dollars he lost in this uh, uh, ridiculous uh, gambling uh, effort back in January of 2011. So does this mean that we have now created common law precedent on interpreting Quebec's non-common law civil code? Uh, well, one would look at it and say, well, look, surely another judge uh, being called upon to interpret that particular provision would come to the same conclusion. Uh, but as, as I understand it, uh -huh. the civil system doesn't recognize precedent in the same way huh. uh, that the common law system uh, would recognize precedent. Wow. The common law system, if you asked a lawyer, you know, uh, is a gambling contract for that amount of money enforceable? Well, I would look up, uh, you know, well, look, it seems that the Court of Appeals made a decision on that uh, in that amount. So if you asked me, uh, you know, would a gambling contract in that amount be enforceable? I would say no. <laughs> yes, here's look what the court's done. Mm. But uh, in the civil system, precedent doesn't operate in the same way. Uh, and as I understand it, there could be some different conclusion reached based on, based on efforts to interpret what all these thousands of sections of the civil uh, code uh, mean. Huh. So it's, I must say, as a common law lawyer, it always leaves me as a bit of a head-scratcher trying to sort out why that would be a sensible way to do it. But, indeed, that is how it's done. And, um, you know, maybe there'll be some reconsideration as to maybe we, they'll need a Section 2630 or <laughs> some other uh, version of this to try to, uh, you know, take into account some other possible version of human affairs. So um, there it is in Quebec, rock, paper, scissors, court of appeal, not skill.
<laughs> overruling but, the trial judge. <laughs> but if it happens again, a different trial judge may find a different or make a different finding, and they would not be bound by stare decisis or by... Yeah, that's right. They would be trying huh. to interpret what that section of the civil code means. Wow. Um, so uh, there it is, and I guess uh, it's sort of a different way of coming to these uh, decisions uh, with the idea being we'll try to anticipate all these things and codify all of these things. So there we are in Quebec. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. While the Court of Appeal back in action using Zoom, and we've talked about that, I would imagine the trial courts are having a much tougher time. What is the status of all that? They are having a tougher time. Uh, there was uh, yesterday a couple of things uh, happened on this front. Um, first of all, there was a Zoom uh, meeting uh, with in excess of 2,000 participants, mainly lawyers and judges in British Columbia, including the chief uh, judges of uh, each of the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, and the Provincial Court, talking about what they're trying to do uh, and their experiences trying to get everything back on track as best they can while keeping everyone safe. And as of this Monday, the Court of Appeal is going to be theoretically back operating at full capacity and simply doing every hearing by Zoom. But that doesn't work uh, in the trial courts as easily because there are factors like uh, witnesses showing up uh, and actually having the accused person there and in the Supreme Court juries and how do you deal with those, right? Uh, and so uh, the um, what happened yesterday as well is that the provincial court uh, extended the period of time they were uh, presumptively adjourning non-urgent cases. Previously, they would had adjourned all of the non-urgent cases that were set up to May the 15th. They've extended that now to July the 3rd. So an additional large chunk of cases will, will be adjourned, uh, the July ones, into October to fix new dates. However, uh, in an effort to try and uh, manage what's going to be a uh, otherwise an insurmountable backlog of uh, trials that just haven't been completed, yes. the provincial court is uh, going to try uh, to conduct um, hearings by telephone uh, involving uh, the uh, judge and counsel, either on family things or on criminal matters. Uh, and it sounds like with the objective of trying to um, encourage resolution of things, even if it's not a, a trial. You know, the judge perhaps intervening to uh, encourage parties to settle the thing or offer some uh, insight into, you know, how a particular issue might be resolved or decided. So they're going to try that on. They're also, they've announced that on, for criminal matters, uh, for sentencings where um, the Crown and Defense are, uh, have a similar sentencing position, uh -huh. and the Crown is not asking for a period of jail, the intention is that uh, if uh, both parties agree, the judges will conduct those sentencing hearings by telephone. Um, and so uh, what I expect you're going to see uh, would be for sentencings of, uh, on things that are uh, at the low end of the seriousness continuum. You know, you can imagine things like you know, somebody was charged with shoplifting and they want to plead guilty to that. Mm -hmm. or somebody was charged with, uh, you know, breaching their probation condition by not, um, you know, drinking alcohol or not uh, reporting on time, something of that, things of that sort. Yes. Um, and there are many, many cases in the criminal justice system uh, that are at that relatively low end of the seriousness continuum. 
and collectively they would represent thousands of cases across the province. Um, and if we keep pushing the load of cases further and further down the road, it's going to be impossible to get through them. And so there just is going to need to be some prioritizing in terms of what can proceed, how can it proceed. Uh, and um, it sounds like the intention with these telephone conferences would be to try to uh, encourage council to uh, resolve cases where possible, right? Uh, yes. Parties aren't that far apart. And if the resolution is one uh, that would not involve a, a jail sentence in the criminal context, uh, or uh, there could be some resolution of a family matter, for example, the idea would be have the judge do that by telephone and get her done. Uh, because if we, uh, the, it is not a solution to forever push things uh, along because the system had uh, very little slack capacity at the time they stopped dealing with these matters. And if we have months and months of cases um, pushed back, they simply cannot all proceed in the ordinary uh, way. The delay would just be intolerable. Um, other things are going on that were interesting in that uh, uh, video uh, conference yesterday of the 2,000 lawyers and judges that we talked about. Uh, provincial courts making other efforts to do things like um, install plexiglass barriers and sort out ways to physically separate people. Yes. Uh, there are some practical problems, like, for example, where the judge would sit is less than six feet away from where the court clerk would sit. Uh, and the court clerk can't be easily moved because they have, like, audio recording equipment and computer systems to take notes. So yes. you have to figure out how can you move all that stuff away or put up a barrier so that the... You know, as uh, uh, Prime Minister is saying, nobody's speaking moistly on the other individual, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, you're not going to be too happy if you're the court clerk and you've got a judge three feet behind you <laughs> leaning over at you to do things. So perhaps some of those uh, plexiglass barriers that were put up uh, in uh, uh, grocery stores, those can be installed. Uh, similar things may be necessary for places like uh, the witness box, yes. right? So you could have them separated. Uh, you may then require other things like audio amplification, because even in the best of times, uh, it can be difficult for everyone to hear what all is being said. Um, and then uh, also, if you're talking about things like uh, limiting the number of people in the uh, courtroom, um, so they're actively working on trying to come up with physical modifications so that everyone can be there safely and do their job. Uh, but in the interim, they've realized we just can't be forcing witnesses and juries and various people to be all uh, showing up and being in close proximity. So the bottom line is that cases are being put off. They're going to do their best, the judges, to try and encourage resolution. And where there can be resolution of cases, uh, they're going to try to do what they can to uh, manage what can be dealt with in that way by uh, phone, um, or else we're going to find uh, ourselves in an uh, impossible uh, spot the list of adjournments now goes on until uh, October. Wow. The cases that were uh, scheduled into July are being put off to the beginning of October. Uh, and that doesn't mean that somebody would get their July 3rd trial, for example, on October 8th. That would mean they can then ask to have another date fixed for their trial, and they will be behind all manner of things. So what, what happens in terms of delays extending to the point where they constitute prejudice, Michael Mulligan? Uh, well, if you get to, first of all, the Supreme Court of Canada has provided some guidance in terms of the maximum 
permissible length of time, barring exceptional circumstances. So oh, they, they certainly may be exceptional. Yes. But if you have actual prejudice, um, that's likely to be the end of the case. Like, let's say, for example, the uh, critical eyewitness that might have exonerated the person dies yeah. before the trial happens. Yeah. Um, the likely result is that the thing will have to be stayed or discontinued. Uh, we're, we're not going to uh, convict people at unfair trials. Uh, and so it is not hard to imagine uh, how uh, you can, in fact, wind up with real prejudice. And yeah. I should say there is, for many people, real prejudice in just the waiting. That yeah. doesn't necessarily make the trial unfair, right? Maybe all the witnesses are there, but... You can imagine what it's like if you're an ordinary person and you've been waiting for, you know, a year, two years, three years for your trial to get on. You might feel that your entire life is on hold for that period of time. Yes. That doesn't apply to everyone, but it does certainly apply to some. And, of course, we need to approach these things with the presumption that we always have uh, that people are innocent. And so you must approach it from the perspective of, okay, you've got an innocent person here who has been waiting for a very long time uh, with, in some cases, uh, they're on uh, strict bail conditions. Even if somebody's not in jail, uh, they may have been ordered to, you know, not leave their home or they might have been ordered to do, you know, all manner of things that would interfere with their uh, life. And so these things are tremendously important. And the same is true, I should say, on the family front. Um, you know, some of the things that are going on in the family context, you know, if you're waiting for, you know, months or years to figure out, are you going to have access to your child or are you going to get that child support you need or um, those things are very, very important. Uh, and uh, there's just such obvious uh, prejudice by putting them off. Uh, we've talked previously about child apprehension cases. You know, if the government has taken your child away uh, and you're wanting your hearing to argue that that's not uh, appropriate uh, every day that goes by uh, is a very serious prejudice for you. Indeed. I need to get my break in here, so let's do that at this time. Michael Mulligan will continue offering us the benefit of his analysis and insight as Legally Speaking continues right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070 into the final four minutes of our conversation. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the third case we're examining today, a decision released by the B.C. Supreme Court where one judge was unable to continue after hearing evidence in a family case. What happened? Yes, I, I think this is, I think, interesting, particularly in the context of dealing with, you know, COVID-19 and how are judges to deal with things by telephone and otherwise. This was a case, uh, it was a family law case, where there was a seven-day trial, uh, and then after the trial finished, uh, the judge uh, was able to issue some preliminary decisions, uh, but then was incapable of continuing. It sounds like uh, medical, medically incapable of uh, carrying on to render the final decision. Now, in B.C., we have these things called the, the rules, uh, Supreme Court rules, that set out uh, how procedural things are to be dealt with, and that has been contemplated. And the rules permit uh, the chief justice to decide whether it's appropriate to appoint another judge to carry on to make the decision, uh, like decide a case where a judge has died or become incapable of continuing. Um, And, in fact, that's what the uh, chief justice uh, did here. Uh, And uh, so the replacement judge, uh, although the, the judge, of course, did not hear the witnesses live, went back and listened to all of the audio recordings of the seven-day trial, looked at the exhibits, read the transcripts, and listened to submissions of the lawyers, and then 
continued to make the decision, which was just released uh, this week. And in doing that, uh, the uh, replacement judge uh, indicated that, well, they didn't have the benefit of watching the witnesses, indicated that this, that the demeanor of witnesses is but a small factor in a credibility assessment because a witness's presentation while testifying may be affected by a number of factors that may say less about credibility and more about personal circumstances, cultural, cultural or social upbringing. And so even though there were issues of credibility in the case, the replacement judge found that they were able to, by listening to the recordings, reading the transcripts, arguments, looking at the exhibits, uh, make uh, decisions, including decisions uh, in terms of the credibility uh, of the parties, even though they weren't the judge who actually was sitting there uh, watching the trial. Uh, for example, there was uh, an issue about whether the uh, mother in this case was capable of working. She claimed that she was physically unable to do so. Uh, the, uh, res- the respondent husband uh, argued that, look, here are social media postings of her engaging in all kinds of sporting activities during the relevant period of time. The judge looked at those, looked at that evidence, and concluded uh, that he didn't believe uh, the uh, mother's claim that she was physically incapable of working because of the activity she was engaged in. And so, for example, on that basis, made a a finding of credibility, uh, even though uh, the judge didn't observe the witness testifying. Um, The case also involved uh, an issue which I think is important for people to know about, who may be in a a family dispute, uh, and that involves the concept of imputing income. Uh, And here, the mother uh, uh, had a photography business, which for many years made virtually no money. Uh, And the judge found that uh, even though uh, she might have goals to work in that way, she had an obligation to go and work uh, in a meaningful way that would uh, generate money to help uh, support the children. Uh, and so imputed uh, income uh, to her on the basis that she was choosing not to work and engage in a, a photography business that made, you know, $137 in one year, for example. I see. Uh, so that's, I think, an important thing to know. But the big takeaways there are this possibility of having a replacement judge if a judge uh, dies or becomes incapacitated so you don't have to rerun long trials, uh, and as well uh, that idea that uh, in some circumstances... Uh, a judge, even if they can't observe the witnesses in person, uh, may still be in a position to deal with uh, credibility issues uh, by uh, looking at things and listening to the evidence uh, carefully. Uh, and uh, while observing a witness in some cases can be important, uh, the judge points out here that uh, that only plays a small factor uh, in assessing credibility uh, because there can be uh, such misleading conclusions drawn from that. That's all the time we have for today. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for these segments. They are greatly appreciated. Until next week, sir. Always enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. My Heart Radio.